Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the March 1st edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. The year is moving along swiftly, uh, and uh, it's really hard for me to believe it's March. I'm sure there are a lot of you out there who are feeling uh, exactly the way I am, but it's going to be spring in Georgia pretty soon, which is always a wonderful time of the year here. Uh, We've got a great panel of uh, journalists who uh, follow state news and right now are following the legislature that I'll introduce in just a moment. But uh, right before I do, uh, uh, about an hour before we went on the air live in our 9 o'clock edition of the show, we got some important news that Chase McGee passed on to me. Eli Lilly has announced that it is going to cap the out-of-pocket cost of insulin for all users at $35 a month. We all know that is an issue that Senator Raphael Warnock has been working on ever since he arrived in the United States Senate. He worked with the president on trying to make that a reality, and President Biden got on board. They were able to take action that would allow Medicare recipients to get insulin at that price. But there was, it was, always seemed to be out of reach to extend that broadly to all users. So this is a big, big news story for uh, the millions of people who need insulin, but also on, a, on the political side, a win for uh, Raphael Warnock and for uh, President uh, Biden. And, and the question, of course, becomes next, if Eli Lilly makes this move, how far behind can the other big pharma companies be? So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, going into the show, and it's something at some point uh, we might want to talk about on Political Rewind. Okay, that said, let's get right to this terrific panel. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and an analyst for every platform of NBC News, joins us uh, as he does every Wednesday. Greg, how are you? I'm great. That is such huge news, Bill. I hadn't seen that, but it, you know, insulin is a life-saving drug that has taken by millions of people daily. So it shows you that sometimes legislation, even if it doesn't go all the way, it still does prompt some changes from from the private world as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Stephen Fowler is back with us. Stephen, of course, is the politics reporter for uh, GPB News. Stephen, did I see the Battleground Ballot Box is, is back? Are you starting a new series of uh, podcasts? I do have a special episode out maybe once a month or so, uh, depending on the topic. And the one that just came out yesterday is a look at the week I spent with elections officials as they received training in Jekyll Island earlier in February. Okay, so that's available wherever people get their uh, podcasts. Uh, Thanks for uh, letting us know about that, uh, Stephen. Um, Emma Hurt is uh, with us today. She, of course, a reporter for Axios Atlanta. How are you, Emma? 
Hey, Bill. I'm great. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. And Raul Bali, WABE politics reporter and a man who co-hosts a podcast of his own. Tell us about your podcast. We'll give you a chance to promote it, Raul. It's Gold Dome Scramble. Uh, it's a podcast that I do uh, along with my fellow WABE policy reporter, uh, Sam Greenglass. Uh, we uh, take a you know a, a look at everything going on at the state capitol, but then we go deeper on a story. And our latest episode, we actually are joined by the great uh, reporters at the AJC talking about their great housing series. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more. But I also want to mention that today is my favorite day at the state capitol. It is peanut butter and jelly day at the state capitol. <laughs> it is my absolute. And for those who don't know, if you walk into the state capitol today, they will be grilling hot peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The smell wafts through the state capitol, and I enjoy my sandwiches. I knew there was a reason that I miss being down there covering the Capitol. Thank you for reminding me, Raul. Uh, Greg, before I want to talk about the legislature uh, in more detail today, but before we get to that, you posted a story that I think we really need to talk about first. Um, this week, most of us in, in the news business here in Georgia have been talking about how the Buckhead Cityhood movement has advanced further than it ever had before. Two bills passed out of a Senate uh, committee calling for independence. It could go to the rules uh, committee and get on the the general calendar at some point soon. Uh, But tell us why this bill is now basically dead in its tracks, Greg. Yeah, and we'll see if it still reaches a vote later this week or later next week. But Really, you know, there's a two-page memo that is packed with legal questions from Governor Kemp's executive counsel, David Dove, um, laying out a lot, many of the questions that critics and lawmakers have laid out now for years about the, how $3 billion plus in bonds would be handled, about the layers of uh, government that would be replaced or supplanted by the secession movement, uh, whether or not students who live in uh, the proposed city of Buckhead could even attend Atlanta public school system. What happens to tax allocation districts and publicly financed projects? All these issues that have been raised for years now without any answers from Buckhead cityhood supporters are now being also raised by Governor Kemp's top lawyer. And right now, you know, at a moment right before crossover day next week, right as the, you know, it looks like this Buckhead cityhood is getting a little bit more traction, although to be clear, Everyone inside the Capitol, even supporters, know that it, you know, are, are very confident it will never, never actually pass, even before this memo. But this memo now adds more questions and more reason for uh, even some uh, sort of on the fence Republicans to hold their votes, withhold their votes, and and wait another day. So we'll see if that it actually uh, yields that. But that's what I'm already hearing this morning from a number of Republicans saying, you know what, maybe we should just tap the brakes on this one. Yeah, uh, Stephen David Dove, the governor's executive counsel, uh, said that, among other things, that there are unique constitutional and statutory challenges that this measure would uh, pose. And he uh, said that there's great concern that uh, if this passed, it could reshape local governments in ways that, quote, ripple into a future of unseen outcomes. And here's the thing, Stephen. Most of us, as we talked about this story or wrote about this story, realized that it was unlikely 
to pass. But because there was this new momentum for it this year, it's not as if we could ignore it, Stephen. Right. And so typically when a new city wants to be created or is created, <clears throat> it's created from unincorporated areas within a county. So there's not existing processes in place. There's not existing uh, bonds or any sort of financials in place. It's a city gobbling up unincorporated people that are just sitting there, property sitting there, businesses are sitting there. But it's a lot messier when you want to try to break up something that already exists. And people should remember a couple of years ago when the city of Eagles Landing was trying to become a thing by annexing a good chunk of the city of Stockbridge. And obviously, the people of Stockbridge did not want to have a part of their city disappear. But the argument there was you're changing tax things, you're changing longstanding financial obligations. And if you set a precedent for ignoring legal documents, financial documents, and other things to create a new city, then yeah, it would completely reshape things. It's not just about, oh, I would rather say city of Buckhead than city of Atlanta. There's a lot of financial and legal things at stake that the Buckhead city sponsors have never answered that they don't really have answers to because there's a reason that you don't just go around and see uh, other cities playing hungry, hungry hippos with existing properties in other cities because there's a lot of things to consider. <laughs> and so, you know, this is the governor's way of really putting the legal questions and force behind what has so far been ignored about uh, how this could possibly take effect. And so it's kind of putting the brakes, slamming the door, whatever metaphor you want to use, using the constitutionality and the legality of the financials behind it as a way to shut this down in a way that so far has been ignored by Republicans in the Senate. Emma? Yeah, I mean, to, to Stephen's point, I think that the city of Atlanta lobbyists said in committee, this is a divorce, guys. This is not a new, this is not a birth of a new city. This is a divorce. And there's a big difference in a lot of ways. But I do want to say that um, while the mechanics and the logistics of de-annexation have always been fraught, and while this idea is not new, it has come up in decades past, it does still... I mean, it, this sort of movement has still succeeded in a way in getting attention on Buckhead and um, and the very real feelings of fear um, and frustration that residents in Atlanta and in Buckhead have felt about crime um, and other issues. And it has meant that the mayor has has had to um, has had to put Buckhead towards the top of the priority list to make sure that that um, this this cityhood movement can stall. And we saw a new, you know, uh, APD um, office precinct open up in Buckhead. And we have seen some real change from City Hall towards this end. And so while does this do these bills pass? Seems highly unlikely. Seems like no. But what has happened? Buckhead has certainly gotten the attention that it has been seeking. Raul, um, let me ask you a couple of questions, one of them based off of what uh, Emma just said. But before that, uh, you know, there was always an absurd quality to these two bills. I mean, it's it hard to take them seriously. The fact that one of the bills would establish the mayor's salary at $225,000 a year, more than the governor makes, and then 
uh, the measure that lays out how Buckhead would pay for city of Atlanta infrastructure. Um, parks, $100 an acre. School buildings, $1,000. Uh, and, and other uh, factors, I think fire stations, $5,000. I mean, these were absurd figures, and it, it made it hard to take this whole thing seriously from my point of view. And you had Republican lawmakers quietly say that, that where are some of the details? And, and you know, when people would ask me, the two main points are, first of all, what Emma said. You know, you'd hear Buckhead Cityhood people say, well, you gave Mableton a vote, East Cobb a vote. Again, it was so important, and I did this in my reporting, to explain this is different. It's a city being cut out of a city. But you're also right. People have to understand when it comes to bonds, um, municipal bonds with the state, these are really important to state lawmakers. You know, they're important to the budget writers. And it is not surprising that in that letter you have issues about mm. bonds and how money is handled and how uh, things are split up. Look, local and city governments have a powerful voice with their lawmakers, okay? State lawmakers, they listen to their local governments. They listen to, um, you know, their local school boards. And so, you know, when you had hearings and, and a question would be asked, and the, the gentleman's name was Bill Riley, who, who would be answering these questions. Hey, how do you answer X, Y, Z? Oh, we'll tell you down the future. In the end, that wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, Greg, before we finish this, and I think maybe this is going to be the last time we'll talk about Buckhead Cityhood uh, in this session because it does seem to be dead. We'll see. Um, while while certainly uh, Buckhead has some diversity, and while I can only assume there may be some minority residents of Buckhead who thought uh, seceding from uh, Atlanta was a good idea, there is a sense here, and I think Emma really referred to it, in which... It's an example kind of of white privilege. This is a largely white-led movement. It calls extra attention to Buckhead as needing protection against crime when all uh, areas of Atlanta, uh, in black areas of Atlanta, minority areas, you know, Hispanic areas are also dealing with crime. And yet here's white privilege at work, you know, getting, trying to get protection uh, that uh, uh, does not include all of the other residents of the city. Am I am I reaching uh, a little too far to make that uh, 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 observation? Look, I think there are definitely fraught racial dynamics at play. <clears throat> That's been an underlying theme of this entire debate. And let me give you the racial breakdown. Under this proposal, Buckhead City would be 74% white, 11% black, 8% Asian, and 5% Latino. So you're talking about a very wealthy, very um, a majority white enclave that is very different from the rest of the city of Atlanta. And look, I mean, as you mentioned, Republican sponsors, who, by the way, we should, this bears repeating over and over again, all live outside of city of Atlanta. You know, pretty much every elected official who represents Atlanta is opposed to this, or at least neutral on this idea, um, if not outright opposed to it. But the Republican sponsors, that's what they say. They say that they are catering to a, a group of wealthy white individuals who feel like they've been marginalized by Atlanta's um, uh, government structure. And as Emma mentioned, uh, 
the city leaders are kind of bending over backwards right now. And that has changed the dynamic in Atlanta um, because this is not going away. I mean, if, if the, that vote um, this week is there's any, you know, sort of long term lesson, it's that just like airport takeover bills that we've write, written about for years, uh, these issues tend to keep coming back over and over and over again. And so it will be sort of a, a cloud over uh, whoever is the mayor of Atlanta, Dick, Mayor Dickens and, and beyond, uh, because this 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 specter will not go away. And that is one reason why he's he's taken uh, so much pains. I don't know if pains is the right word, but he's taking um, he, he's gone over uh, and beyond in trying to develop a relationship with Governor Brian Kemp. And Kemp, by the way, of course, says that he has developed a strong relationship with the city of Atlanta. All right, um, we'll move on from Buckhead Cityhood for the time being. Um, Stephen, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the attention that gets focused on the legislature these days, and it's certainly been true to some extent this session, is on the cultural issues that uh, particularly Republicans bring up, the hot-button issues that play uh, to the base um, trans issues is one very strong example of that. But it strikes me that a major theme that's developed even more in this session, it's, it's been there in previous sessions as well, has been the way in which Republicans who control the majority in the House and Senate have tried to extend their powers, their tentacles, into so much of local, what is typically local government business. Um, and we can talk about any number of measures that do just that. But l let me start by asking if you agree with that overall theme, that this session we're seeing Republicans try to insert themselves in local affairs in many different ways. Absolutely. And it's everything ranging from housing uh, zoning and how houses are constructed or potentially constructed to how local elections offices are conducting themselves and how elections boards are made up and appointed to we see uh, pushback on like how Cobb County is thinking about redistricting and efforts to do that. And it's, you know, th there's obviously there's a saying about, you know, legislators are all for local control until the locals want control or some variation of that. But really, it, it comes down to what and how the Republican majority is governing. And even though Republicans won by a wide margin in the 2022 midterms, even though they still retain control of the House and Senate, a lot of the lawmakers and the leadership is governing like it is the lead up to 2020. And they have to cater to the base and do the more extreme legislation instead of being in the year 2023, where the people that won and won the most offer a different vision for how they want to legislate by focusing on economic growth and other things that are more palatable to a wider range of people. And so we've really seen that this session even though it's a, an abridged session where they've got the calendar all together and things started out thinking it was going to be calm and slow and we've got all this money in the budget, it really is just ratcheted up into basically seeing who can compete to be the best in next year's primary. Um, you know, Raul, one example of this, um, Stephen alluded to it in a general way, would be what's happening in terms of Ware County. Uh, it, it, the Georgia House last week voted to replace the five-person Ware County Elections Board, which right now I think includes three black members. Um, 
in, and instead would allow that four members of the board would be appointed by the Republican majority on the Ware County Commission instead of Republican and Democrats uh, choosing members for the board. And then the chairperson would be chosen by the other four members of the board. I mean, what the, the results of that would clearly be, instead of having a, a bipartisan board where both Republicans and Democrats would have some say uh, in, a, in a pretty significant way about, about issues involving the elections, or it suddenly becomes a Republican board. And, and, you know, you see it that where county, I think I've seen similar legislation for a couple of other counties. Um, I think Screven is one of those I've seen pop up. And and I think you just heard Stephen mention with what's going on in Cobb County. Look, mm-hmm. you know, Republicans see what's happening statewide. You know, Greg has obviously reported on, on the shift uh, on how this state is shifting and in the same way, Bill, that we you know saw Democrats, you know, trying to hang on to power and make changes in the early 2000s, you're seeing that now with Republicans because the numbers keep getting closer and closer, and you're seeing again this whole idea of of of, of the state stepping in in different places. Um, you know, today is Rivian Day at the state capitol, for example, um, and. We've seen how the state has stepped in on the local process with Rivian um, in, in Morgan County and in Walton County. So this whole, you know, the old lines of local control until, you know, the locals actually take control. That's that's so interesting at the state capital and statewide. I am a Rawls right to talk about Cobb County. So let me just background it a little bit. Uh, I think it was the last session. Uh, that uh, Cobb County obviously is becoming more and more democratic. Their county commission reflects that. Last session, the uh, uh, Republican majority in the legislature redrew the Cobb County commission maps so that a Democrat, uh, Jerrica Richardson, would be out of her seat. Uh, The commission responded by fighting back, drawing their own lines, which put Jerrica Richardson back into that seat, there are questions, legal questions, as to whether a local board does have the power to do that, to uh, essentially veto what the state legislature does. But here again is an example of the Republicans in the legislature trying to insert themselves in Cobb County, in this case affairs, so that they have control of a county commission. Right. And Republicans, of course, are quick to point out that when Democrats had the majority for decades, you know, some of this stuff happened as well at the state capitol. But the Cobb County story dates back to redistricting, as we alluded to, in which um, Republicans who were in the minority of their local delegation still were able to undermine the um, Democratic drawn districts in counties, including Gwinnett and Cobb. Um, I believe Richmond as well. And that has, um, that actually popped up yesterday and to just how far the tentacles of this issue spread in a subcommittee about housing regulation. I mean, sorry, not about housing regulation, about the DA um, push to make DA's races nonpartisan, which Democrats said, wait a minute, you're saying it has to be the local delegation that would would want, would push forward this um, change for its own community 
But last year, remember how you overrode the local delegation majority over redistricting? What's to say you can't do that again? And so it, the, the PTSD is there and it seems to extend uh, across across the board here. Um, and again, one other issue that it, that it that appeared in yesterday is about workforce housing in which um, there is a push, a bipartisan push at the state capitol actually to try to preempt local municipalities and counties' abilities to put design regulations on housing under, and they're saying that this is something that's needed to expand affordable housing access to try to um, give homeowners the freedom to build the kind of houses they want without counties telling them what kind of roofing, what what color siding, um, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, local governments showed up in, in droves yesterday protesting this um, very loudly, and that is shaping up to be a big fight in and of itself. So the trope of local control is very much uh, alive and, and well and, and causes a lot of emotion um, on, on both sides. Greg? Yeah, and Bill, and as you mentioned, um, it's a perennial trend, you know, just like some of these other issues that we've talked about for years, uh, you know, state leaders circumventing local control is a story that we at the AJC have written every year, and I'm sure we'll write another big takeout piece on it uh, over the next few weeks about how, you know, lawmakers always like to say, including Governor Kemp and others, um, state powerful politicians always like to preserve the right for local control, but yet that principle is ignored over and over and over again um, when it when it suits uh, you know their needs. Um, and we really saw it doing redistricting in the last session, but we're seeing it in on many different fronts. Um, you can even include the DA uh, bill, right? The, the DA bill that Emma Hurt was just mentioning and involving more state oversight over elected DAs. And we might not like, you know, locals might not like what their DA is doing, but they also duly elected them. So um, there's a number of issues uh, that, that keep on cropping up involving uh, circumventing local control. Uh, but Greg, one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about, well, there are a couple things. Um, one of them is that um, we all focus pretty routinely on gerrymandering when it comes to legislative uh, districts, congressional districts. And we know that each party, the party in control, tries to do everything it can to maximize its own strength of members. Um, and this is a different version of that, Greg. This is reaching into the local community um, and doing the same thing. And, 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 of course, what's fascinating about that is if you ask Republicans about their feelings uh, toward federal government regulations and laws uh, that they're not particularly happy about, they say, what happened to state control? We have a right, in fact, to... Uh, independently determine our fate on any number of measures. But then you take that to the local level and it's a different story. Exactly. And look, it didn't get as much attention in the last session because we were focused also on the bigger pictures of, of um, the redrawing the congressional maps. But look, you know, that a less visible process was underway at the local level as lawmakers reconfigured all these maps that significantly shifted the power of, of, of elected officials in the suburbs, in democratic bastions like Athens Clark County and beyond. And sometimes it meant circumventing longstanding custom in the state capitol by going directly to a full general assembly vote rather than relying on local delegations. So we saw that shift as well. Um, 
All right. We're going to keep following uh, these measures and see what happens with them. But let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. Uh, There are other legislative issues I'm really looking forward to talking to this panel about, and we'll do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Raul Bali, Stephen Fowler, Emma Hurt, and Greg Bluestein join me today. Emma, before we move completely past this issue of the state uh, legislature trying to move into local affairs, you talked about this measure w- in which the state would preempt some of the local building restrictions that uh, communities, that municipalities, counties put in place. Uh, just describe a little bit more what that's all about. Because then I want to remind the panel of a very similar thing that happened in Sandy Springs a few sessions ago when the legislature tried to put into effect rules that overruled uh, Sandy Springs building codes. But Emma, talk about what's going on right now. Right. This is a bill sponsored by Republican Dale Washburn, but it does have some Democratic co-sponsors as well. And the idea, according to Washburn, is to, one, um, give homeowners and home builders the freedom to build the kind of homes they want, two, to make those constructions more affordable, and three, um, to, oh, what is the third? Workforce housing, duh. Um, to expand the supply of housing in the state, which, as we know, is a problem. And um, but the way to do that, he proposes, is to preempt counties and cities' abilities to add certain kinds of restrictions on construction design. And right now, his list includes the color of a house, but it also includes the kind of materials in a foundation, in a roof. And local municipalities and counties are very upset about this because they say that it prohibits their ability to have any say in what is built in their communities. Um, On the other side of this is Habitat for Humanity, the Georgia Chamber, the realtors who say that these restrictions have gotten out of hand and sometimes cause projects to get torpedoed for without good cause. But I will just say that based on the tenor of the committee that I listened to yesterday, which got quite emotional, um, this is gonna be a kind of drag out fight um, between the municipalities, the counties, and these state lawmakers, home builders, et cetera. By the way, Raul, I mentioned Sandy Springs. <clears throat> In 2018 session, uh, the House passed a bill which would uh, overrule a Sandy Springs building code, which required that all buildings that were more than three stories or 100,000 square feet to be constructed with concrete or other non-flammable materials and not wood. And Mayor Rusty Paul, a Republican, was furious about that measure, fought it very, very hard. And as I recall, that that bill ended up being withdrawn. I don't think that bill uh, succeeded, as I recall, Raul. But go ahead and make your point. 
and I wanted to talk even kind of further about what um, what Emma was talking about. This is part of that bigger conversation about affordable housing and and and, and the rights of homeowners. You know, Dale Washburn, who is the, the the lawmaker on those bills, is saying, look, we need to at least have some way to have housing that is cheaper, whether it's with vinyl siding or homes, you know, that are that that are smaller. Then you've got some of the other interesting proposals out there that I'm following. State Representative Spencer Price, you know, trying to deal with this whole idea of in companies and corporations buying houses up around the state. And what he's proposing is taking away depreciation from corporations of those homes on their state tax breaks as a disincentive. Now, will it actually be a disincentive? We'll see. Will the legislation even pass? It's not really moving yet. And again, I want to refer to the great reporting with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on, on, on housing, um, on what people have been going through with housing. You have House Bill 404, which actually did get out of committee yesterday, had a number of tenant protections, including, you know, capping security deposits at three times rent. You can't cut off the AC during the eviction process. Just some of the things that are in that bill um, that got out of committee. And that one's actually backed by the House Speaker, John Byrne. So, look, Republican lawmakers, leading lawmakers know they've, they've got to do something about housing. The question is what? And as Emma noted, that hearing yesterday got heated because people want to do something about affordable housing. The question is, what is that answer? All right. Thank you for that, Raul. Let's uh, move on to some other issues. Stephen Fowler, you filed a piece that's on the GPB website right now. If you don't mind, I'll read the lead that you wrote back to you. The Georgia Senate Ethics Committee passed a version of an elections omnibus bill Tuesday night, last night, that might violate federal law and includes a last-minute ban on absentee drop boxes. Um, there's more to the measure than that, but Stephen, it's interesting. This comes after leaders in the legislature, and I think the governor himself said, you know, we've done enough with election laws. No reason to do anything this session. Well, and there are some things in election law related things that need addressing. This bill does do a number of things that state and local elections officials do like, such as tweaking uh, the deadline to report the total denominator of ballots cast in an election on Election Day. It's currently 10 p.m. People say that's too soon. This bill would move it back to 11.59 p.m. It would also allow for more audits for uh, primary elections to continue to do those risk-limiting audits that people would see and have trust that the right winner won because of the voting system. But then there are a number of things in this bill that nobody asked for, or at least nobody in the election sphere asked for, um, including measures that would strengthen the ability for random Georgians to initiate mass voter challenges of people's eligibility to be on the rolls. Uh, Blake Evans, who's the state's elections director, testified that the way it was worded might violate the National Voter Registration Act, which requires a notice and confirmation process to remove somebody from the rolls. You can't just automatically kick somebody off. And even after that testimony, they pushed it through anyway. The only Republican that voted against it is Brian Strickland of McDonough. He had concerns about language in the bill that would require video surveillance of drop boxes, which are already inside of early voting locations. Uh, he had some concerns about the technology access to it because of you know many rural counties that don't have a lot of internet access. 
and also concerns about an amendment to it that would have made drop boxes optional. And then after all of that, after all of the testimony, after all of the basically the sponsor's failure to answer questions about the bill at the very last minute, uh, Rick Williams, a Republican from Milledgeville, made a motion to amend the bill to just get rid of boxes completely. So after they figured out how that would logistically work, they voted to add that language to the bill, send the bill out of committee and abruptly adjourn. And so it's a bill that doesn't seem likely to go very far for many reasons. Uh, but it just kind of shows that even though it is 2023, it's actually 2020 again, again, again. Yeah. And one other example of that on the House side is a bill uh, proposing to basically unseal the ballots um, to allow um, citizens to request higher resolution copies of the original paper ballots um, that currently you can get through a scan done by the, the voting machine itself. And some, um, you know, advocates argue that that doesn't, and that's not enough um, oversight over the whether there was counterfeiting on these ballots. And it did feel like a bit of Groundhog Day um, talking about it because opponents argue that doing so would open the state up to the kind of sham audits that we've seen happen, quote, audits happen in other um, states. But I will just add on the other side of the coin, there is, um, and I'm sure there are other bills that uh, maybe Stephen knows about even more, but I also saw yesterday a nice, easy bipartisan bill get through um, to allow those with children under the age of five to cut the voting line, adding them into the category with those with disabilities and those over 75. So that was a nice feel good voting bill, which is important to celebrate because we don't have so many bipartisan voting bills in Georgia right now. Boy, that's your Greg. Uh, I think Emma and Stephen hit the nail on the head. There are ways in which aspects of the measures they're discussing really, really remind us there are still members of the Georgia legislature who are fighting the 2020 presidential election all over again. And members of our congressional delegation, we just saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, U.S. Congresswoman, um, say Trump won Georgia, even though it's a, that's a flat-out falsehood. We saw her say that at a at a panel discussion just last night. Um, we know that's not true, um, but th- it is still permeating parts of of the electorate in Georgia and some of our elected officials. Um, you know, I was I was messaging back and forth with Mark Nisi, our our elections expert at the AJC last night. And one of the things he noted was, look, the ballot drop box part is definitely important uh, about eliminating that. It's, it's not likely to survive uh, in, the, in the current form or fashion in any sort of legislation. But what is more concerning um, to him and to a lot of voter rights advocates is the bill would permit unreliable change of address data to be used against people who temporarily relocate. That's college students, military members, um, homeless people, um, and others. And so that part does have a chance of, of sort of withstanding some more legislative scrutiny. So that, that, is, that is one of the aspects that we're watching very closely here. All right. I got to get to the final break of the show. Back with more in a minute. Quick program note. Tomorrow, tomorrow on the show, we've assembled a panel to talk about media in the news. Um, so, for example, uh, the revelations that personalities at Fox News were well aware that they were promoting lies about 
uh, the fake 2020 election, uh, which now is driving the Dominion lawsuit against Fox in a major way. Um, Why does the Georgia legislature have protection against open records requests and any number of other issues that have really popped up as significant in uh, uh, coverage of the media these days. So Kevin Riley, the AJC editor, will be here. Tom Clyde, Cox Communications attorney. Claire Norens, who is the director of the University of Georgia First Amendment Clinic. And our friend Anthony Michael Price from uh, Georgia State will all be here to talk about uh, that. Um, Greg Bluestein, more than a million Georgians applied for debt relief uh, in terms of student loans. Uh, 642,000 were approved for that relief. The others are still in the works. And of course, all that was halted by appeals courts, which said uh, this isn't going to get anywhere until the Supreme Court weighs in. Yesterday, the Supreme Court did hear the case, and it appears that for the most part, the conservative justices are going to prevail on this They believe that when you're talking, and I think Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, said it uh, best for the the conservatives, uh, when you're talking about half a trillion dollars and 43 million Americans, how can you not want to take this to Congress for approval? So uh, we won't know a ruling. Go ahead, Greg. Oh, I said that echoes the the arguments we heard from Republican lawmakers when the Biden administration took this action, this executive action, which is you can't spend, you can't roll out a plan that involves $400 billion, an estimated price tag of $400 billion without going through Congress, unless that agency has explicit statutory authority to do so. And there is a major question we heard in court uh, about whether or not um, that agency did have that explicit authority. And the Supreme Court justices, the conservative justices, seem very skeptical of the argument that that the, the Biden administration had the power, had the legal authority to take this step. Well, it, it, Stephen, as I pointed out on yesterday's show, it wasn't just Republicans on the Hill who were uh, uh, against this. It was Nancy Pelosi, a speaker at the time, who said, no, 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 this is going to need congressional approval. So I, it's it, now the big question, Stephen, is going to be the justices could come back and say that the different part, there are two different parties, two different lawsuits that neither party may have standing. And then that raises questions as to whether the lower courts end up uh, with their blocks remaining in place. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that it's the the current landscape of a lot of our big political decisions right now rests on what court it ends up getting heard in, what president appointed what judge, and what their interpretation on standing and the ability to bring a lawsuit, let alone be successful on it, rests. And this is one of those issues uh, that we're seeing that play out. But what will be interesting to watch on the timing of a lot of these things is whatever the ruling will be, it's not going to be something that is just suddenly over. And I think you could end up seeing this issue continuing to play out as we start thinking about 2024 and people's platforms for both Congress and for the White House. And it could end up being that there could be really either for either side of this issue, there could be a temporary victory that could be a larger setback when put in the greater context of what people are thinking about when they head to the polls next year. Raul, I was not aware until yesterday, I knew we had a million people who'd applied, but I wasn't aware that Georgia is third in the nation in terms of people with student debt. 
So this has a huge impact on our state. Absolutely. I mean, and you got to, you know, it's not only it's those people who are moving to Georgia, you know, to taking those fintech jobs at, at, <clears throat> in taking, um, you know, the jobs at Microsoft and Google. We have so many. It's not just the people who went to the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech. It's those people who are moving in from out of state or came to school out of state and stayed. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, and you hear the governor talk about all the people who are moving to Georgia to work. So that, that's why that number isn't surprising. And of course, there are the people, like I have family members who are, you know, from here who moved away and came back with student debt as well. So um, it's not surprising when you hear that number. Um, Emma, we're starting to move uh, out of time here, but you wrote a piece for Axios Atlanta the other day about the friendship between Jimmy Carter and uh, now President Joe Biden, which began when Joe Biden was just a young uh, senator uh, from uh, Delaware. Just share with us a little bit about what you reported in that story. Yeah, um, you know, it's something that I think we've been aware of in Georgia, but maybe, you know, some of my national colleagues were really surprised to learn it, which is part of why I wrote the story, um, that back in 1976, the first presidential endorsement that Jimmy Carter got from an elected official outside of Georgia was from Joe Biden, who was then a freshman senator from Delaware. And that since then, they have remained close Carter campaign for Biden. And then, you know, in 2020, we know that he recorded a message um, endorsing Biden, um, calling him a loyal and dedicated friend. And and Biden also has spoken really um, highly of Carter over the years. And um, I spoke to uh, Jerry Rafshoon about this, a former top Carter aide. And he said that he thinks the two bonded over being outside of the Washington establishment of both having to, he says, fight their way into to power and um, of seeing eye to eye policy wise as moderates is what Rafshoon said, both who who don't who didn't fall in the liberal or conservative camp and that that um, those commonalities have sustained them. And we know that the Bidens visited the Carters in 2021 in Plains. And, um, you know, I've, we've you know, when Carter went into hospice, Biden came out with another message. And it's just this friendship that has simmered, um, but simmered for decades. Um, Biden was just a first term senator when he made that endorsement of uh, then candidate uh, Carter. Um, and yes, you mentioned this very poignant visit that the Bidens made to Plains to see the Carters in 2021. And Greg Bluestein. You've been spending some time in Plains as well as uh, President Carter continues in hospice. Talk about that. Yeah, I spent most of the last week in Plains. And, you know, it's it's a town of 600 people where everyone has some sort of connection, it seems, to either President Carter or his family, where they know him as just more than a former president, but as as a neighbor, as a friend, as as uh, Mr. Jimmy, right? It, he he's he's part of the fabric of that community, and they also remember that that visit by President Biden very fondly of April of 2021, lining the roads for the presidential motorcade coming down this little speck of a town in Southwest Georgia, where they got to rekindle that relationship that Emma just spoke so eloquently about. Um, because look, it was a big gamble when President Biden endorsed. 
Jimmy Carter. He was one of the first elected officials outside Georgia to pick Carter in the race. And uh, a lot was riding on that bet. And it turned out it turned out well for both of those men. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a lot of fraught politics, of course, involved in, in endorsements of presidential figures. And, and, and Joe Biden took that gamble and it worked out. Um, well, we're all, of course, thinking a lot about Jimmy Carter. I, I do want to make the point, and, I, and I, I'm not a health reporter, but I know that when the news first broke, <clears throat> excuse me, that Carter had decided to stop medical treatment and go into hospice, there were many people who assumed that when you go into hospice, you have possibly days left to live. And of course, that's not the case necessarily. Um, my father-in-law spent, uh, I think, two to three months in hospice care. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that we have Jimmy Carter with us for some time to come. But I, but I do think it's important to remember that as we think about Jimmy Carter uh, in his uh, last journey. Uh, I want to mention one last thing before we uh, leave uh, today. Um, our senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall, produced a really wonderful feature story that uh, talked about something called the Sojourner Motor Fleet, which was uh, organized by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee right here in Atlanta, SNCC, um, which was um, sending its volunteers across the rural South to register voters. And they had, I think, about two dozen vehicles and drivers who took people out under very dangerous conditions to um, to try to get them to places where they could do some good. And and uh, the piece played on Morning Edition the other day. But I, I want to play for you a quick soundbite from one of the women who was interviewed, who was part of the organizing force that put together what Natalie uh, called uh, Uber before Uber. Let's listen. And so um, I remember being on the highway going up from, from Greenwood, Mississippi to Atlantic City for this Democratic um, National Convention in 1964. And honey, people getting out of our way, white people on the highway getting out of our way because our cars look like police cars. They look like state troopers. You know, these Plymouths were wonderful. The Sojourner Motor Fleet. You know, Raul, it, it, when I hear stories about things like SNCC, it just reminds me that the legacy of civil rights in the South, on one hand, there's such a dark, dark history. And on the other hand, when you hear, think about things like SNCC doing this, you celebrate how brave uh, those people were. And I think just as importantly, we need to appreciate those who are still left. We need to appreciate the Andy Youngs. I value my old conversations I had with Hosea Williams. Those who are still here, we need to talk to them. There's so much we can learn from them. I think that's a really wonderful point. We are out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Raul Bali of WABE, our own Stephen Fowler, GPB, thank you for being here. Emma Hurt, we loved having you on from Axios Atlanta. And, of course, Greg Bluestein, my Wednesday partner, thank you so much for being with us as well. That's it. For our show today, as I said, we're back tomorrow with a show in which we're going to talk about the media in the headlines these days. And I'm really looking forward to that uh, program. So I hope you'll join us for that. That's it for today. See you tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>